Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of The Tom Gully Show. And if you're a fan of the Fab Four, the British invasion, or you just love well-told insider tales of rock and roll history, you should get it immediately. Here with us to share the details of the Beatles and Me on tour is renowned author and journalist Ivor Davis. What a pleasure. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you, Tom, for that splendiferous introduction. And so I started on the very first day of their tour in San Francisco. And when I showed up at the Cal Palace and sat down to hear the Beatles live for the first time in my life, I couldn't hear a word. And the reason I couldn't hear a word was from, from start to finish, there's 17,000 audience, most of them young women, were screaming from start to finish. And that, was, and that was the way it went all across America into Canada. Back then, fortunately for me, there was a guy on the tour called Derek Taylor, who was a brilliant, witty fellow that used to work as an entertainment writer for the Daily Express, my old my newspaper. So Derek was my passport to the Beatles. As soon as I got there, he brought me up to their suite. He introduced me to each of the Beatles, told them who I was. They looked at me, they grunted, and they went back to watching television. <laughs> but so, so my, the welcome to the Beatles was not ter- terribly overwhelming. Part of the problem was they were, they were so terribly jet-lagged. But then after a few days, they got used to me, and we di- I, I mean, we didn't have badges. I just stuck close. They were in limousine number one. I was in limousine number two. Yeah, I was actually, I was, I was at the right old age of 25, the Beatles were 21, 22, and 23. And, um, and, you know, there were new boys on the American block. They were like, you know, kids in the American candy store. They didn't know what to expect in America. I remember Paul said to me, you know, what can we give America? What can we give America? Because they've got everything. They've got Elvis. They've got the, uh, the, the Motown. And so in the 3 o'clock in the morning, John would call my room, and I was right next door. Um, to his suite and say, look, we're playing Monopoly, come over. And so I went over, we played Monopoly. John was actually brought his own English Monopoly set with him. And I, I mentioned that John actually was um, a bit of a cheat because if he didn't land on the property he wanted, he would roll the dice again and again until he landed on the property he wanted. That in 1964, there was not much there. There was the grassy knoll, there was that ugly building where Oswald shot. And there wasn't much to see. Today, it's a different place. But Brian thought the wound of, of Kennedy being shot five, six, seven months earlier was not worth ha- taking the Beatles there, and he managed to persuade John not to go and see it. And I must tell you one other funny story at the Hollywood Bowl. They used to have a, a big fountain uh, in front of the Hollywood Bowl, and, and during the Hollywood Bowl engagement, three girls tried to swim <laughs> through the fountain to the Beatles and were fished out by security guys and I, and I, and I wondered what would have happened if, if a, a sort of a bedraggled soaked young woman scampered onto the stage and tried to hug George or John uh, with their electric guitars it, it could have been dangerous oh. but I will tell you this I know this for a certainty because George suggested it to me at the time and told more, me more about it many years later he never was very comfortable being a Beatle. He wanted to be recognized for a man in his own right. On the plane, whenever we, we all traveled in a private Beatles jet, 
um, when we took off, Paul used to come down and say, how are you doing, Ivor? Can I get you a drink? So I said, how about a gin and tonic? So Paul would go to the galley and pour me a gin and tonic and serve it to me. So, so, so my, you know, my claim to fame is that Paul McCartney was once my waiter on a, on a jet plane. There were women dying to meet the Beatles, and the Beatles, from time to time, were dying to meet the women. <laughs> well, I understand there were some ladies of the evening that were gathered together for a photo op or something. I think it was well, here in you, Dallas. You obviously, yeah, you, you know, you've done... Oh, you've obviously read the book. Oh, yeah, cover to cover. Wow. I could not put it down. I Honestly, Good. sir, I could not put it down. This is the best book on the Beatles I have ever read. Uh, the promoter walked in, opened the door, and out trotted seven or eight very attractive, skimpily clad young women. Now, I knew they weren't Beatles fans because, uh, first of all, they didn't scream. They stood there rather looking, um, how can I put it, very desirable. And the guy said to the Beatles, he didn't say it to me, unfortunately, take your pick. Uh, here in the United States, we have a probably reduced the Beatles to uh, a fable, which isn't probably as resonant as it should be, but it's they were in the Cavern Club, then they came to the Ed Sullivan Show, yeah. then they became famous. Then Bob Dylan introduced them to marijuana. Then they met yeah. the Maharishi. Then Yoko came along. They played a concert in New York, and that's the Beatles. You were there, actually there, for the legendary moment when the Beatles were introduced to marijuana by Bob Dylan. Yes, a sem have, seminal, seminal moment in yeah. music history. Can, what really happened? Well, here's what happened. Um, now, you were, you were there for another uh, very famous moment, which was Elvis meeting the Beatles, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, well, here's what happened, Tom. For the first year, Brian Epstein, the manager, and Tom Parker, Elvis's manager, had been trying to get the boys together. They never met him again. They never got together again. And um, it was unfortunate. But, but that's, you know, that meeting was amazingly never cataloged by pictures, by recordings, by anything, except I was very fortunate to be there in the house watching it all unfold. And what happened in 66 was when John Lennon's quotes about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus came back to haunt him in America. Right. And that turned a large segment, particularly in the, in the American South, it turned them off of the Beatles. They burnt the Beatle records. John was very fearful for his own life, believe it or not. I mean, he was scared. And they were even thinking about canceling the 1966 tour because there was such bad blood and bad feeling about the Beatles. The Beatles did the tour. Um, they were very... The Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles uh, rejected the Beatles because they were perceived as maybe too rowdy. And they ended up staying in a house somewhere and... Uh, please tell us how it happened. They watched a movie at Burt Lancaster's house. Did they meet Burt or did they just go watch the movie? Well, here's what happened. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, an amazing evening, a jam nightclub, drinks thrown, screams, off they went, the Beatles, uh, and re regretting that they'd been, been enticed to a nightclub by Jane Mansfield. And in fact, Jane Mansfield was playing um, footsie with uh, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, while she was at the club, but 
that's another story. Well, you know, and uh, Jane Mansfield, kind of the poor man's Marilyn Monroe, not that yeah. famous for acting, basically famous for being a sex symbol. If uh, exactly. Di- Diana Doors had been in there, you would have had the, the great triumvirate of blonde well, bombshells. You know, you, know you're, you, you are an expert on sex symbols. My oh, God. I try. Diana Doors. I hadn't heard that name for a long time. Yeah. Groucho Marx uh, crashed a Capitol Records party that was thrown for the Beatles, and that meeting... First of all, until I read your book, I, I was unaware of it. Second of all, the idea that these guys with this quick um, off-kilter sense of humor from Liverpool would meet Groucho uh, is just an, an amazing concept. What was that meeting like? Well, well, you're right, because because it was, you know, they were, they were both, Groucho and the Beatles, uh, became very, very good on one-liners. Uh, and what happened was finally the Beach Boys almost nervously approached a local DJ in Portland, Oregon, and said, "Look, you know, we're dying to meet the Beatles. Do you think you could get us in?" <laughs> and uh, the, the DJ got them into Portland, and the Beatles were very gracious to them. Uh, Brian, um, did you have any contact after the first and second tours uh, with the Beatles? Did you? I'm um, obviously you were quite prominent in Los Angeles as a journalist for for quite some time uh did you you keep in contact with them or did you run into them again over the years yes yes i did um and then i'd seen john in la when he was living with a woman called may pang oh yeah uh, after yoko had sent john to la with may pang during the uh harry chapin brandy alexander days exactly oh my god you know it all I told him that I'd written the first book on the, the, the Charles Manson murders, and I asked him whether, uh, as Manson had claimed, that the, the, the Beatle music inspired him to the violence, and John said it was a bunch of old shit, actually, was the word he used, um, and that um, people picked their lyrics and decided to use the lyrics to suit their own purposes, whatever they were. No, I mean, I've, I, I'm working on, a, on, on two books. One is about uh, some Hollywood movies, because I covered Hollywood for 45 to 50 years, uh, all, all the stuff, uh, all the movie stars. And uh, there is another incredible story about a friend of mine in Malibu, California, who turned out to be a mass murderer. It's either showbiz or murder. Uh, I haven't quite decided, but uh, I'm still enjoying my ticket to Beetle Ride, and I'm having a good time on that and enjoying talking to you and 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 the, the fact that you are so savvy and uh, you know know every little wrinkle and uh, i think what i'll do is if it's all right with you when i do my next book uh, tour perhaps you could come along and you can kind of do the q a and fill in the bits that i forget i'd love to and then i can write a book in 50 years called <laughs> ivor davis and me on tour due to some violent content parental discretion is advised <laughs> It's time, America. Mr. and Mrs. North of South America, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright locked position, and get ready for big time radio, friends. It's time for... Check is in the mail when your bird is on the 
And you answer with a grin And you wrestle with the blame When the lumber hits the skin And it's time to pay the toll Let the truth the wagon roll Good evening, it is Thursday, February 12, 2015, episode 237. I'm Tom Gully, and tonight on The Tom Gully Show, we could probably spend about 20 episodes talking with Ivor Davis about his journalistic career. Just one, one of his many experiences of the stories he's covered would probably be enough for most. But among the pinnacles of his many escapades was the time he spent in 1964 on the Beatles' first North American tour. That's right, when the Beatles first came to America. And most importantly, he had exclusive access, living, traveling, and spending every mile of the journey with the Beatles. Mr. Davis will tell us about the Beatles meeting Elvis, the Beach Boys, Burt Lancaster, Grouch O. Marx, He'll talk about the links young ladies would go to in order to meet the Beatles. And Ivor Davis was in the room when Bob Dylan introduced the Fab Four to marijuana. And he'll tell us about that, too. It's the one-of-a-kind, exclusive, behind-the-scenes tales. <laughs> you won't hear these anywhere else. From Me and the Beatles on Tour with its author, Ivor Davis, tonight on The Tom Gully Show. Hello, 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 this is Karen from London here, just popping in to say that in the light of all the wondrous celebrations over here we've had our Royal Highness, her Jubilee. Things were a bit down in the dumps. So thank heavens above we have the charming, lovely Tom Gully. He's the darling of the man. Always there for a laugh to perk up my day. So why don't you go and check him out at the TomGullyShow.com. If Ivor Davis had never met the Beatles, he would have a career that would make other journalists very envious. He traveled with Bobby Kennedy, covered the Watts riots, published the first book on the Sharon Tate murders, covered the Angela Davis trial, the Patty Hearst conviction. Not to mention something that has me very envious, he covered four World Cups for CBS Radio. But the fact of the matter is that Ivor Davis did meet the Beatles, not just meeting them, but getting exclusive access as he traveled with them during their first U.S. tour. He brilliantly chronicles it all in his very personal book, The Beatles and Me on Tour, available at IvorDavisBeatles.com. That's I-V-O-R DavisBeatles.com. And if you're a fan of the Fab Four, the British Invasion, or you just love well-told insider tales of rock and roll history, you should get it immediately. Here with us to share the details of the Beatles and Me on Tour is renowned author and journalist, Ivor Davis. What a pleasure. Welcome, sir. 
Well, thank you, Tom, for that splendiferous introduction. <laughs> well, uh, much much appreciated, and I hope I can I can live up to it. Well, and the, we've already discussed the fact that you support Tottenham, and I support Arsenal, which should really make us blood enemies uh, right off the bat. Uh, but yeah, but we've we've gotten past. You're it. right. We can get over it. We can work it out. That's a good uh, line, isn't it? We, we can work it out. We can work it out, and we'll just meet at Pat Jennings. Right. We'll just meet at good Pat, idea. Meet at Pat Jennings. Uh, now, your book does what all great books of his kind do, if I may say so. It puts the reader right there with you in that moment of time. Can you sort of set the stage for those who aren't familiar with the way the media worked back then? What it was like to be the West Coast correspondent for a large British newspaper? Well, in those days, people read newspapers to start with. <laughs> Today, unfortunately, as you know, Tom, uh, there is a bit of a decline and fall of newspapers around the country, around the nation, and um, it's all internet and it's all wonderful bloggers and all that sort of stuff. But back then, the London Daily Express, which is the newspaper I was an uh, American correspondent for, was powerful. It had four million readers a day. And one day, my foreign editor called me up and said, I was in California writing about Hollywood and other interesting stories, said, the Beatles are coming to America for the first time to do a, an American tour. We want you to travel with them, hang out with them, write about them, and also write a column for George Harrison. And so off I went to San Francisco to meet the Beatles for the first time, and that's when all hell broke loose. <laughs> well, I think it's important for people to understand, you know, because you'd mentioned it. Now the news sort of is gathered by a lot of people. Uh, a lot of them are not necessarily journalists. But when you were doing this, you were the focal point of the news that would be going back. I mean, there wasn't 10 other guys standing next to you there. You were the guy, not just on this story, but on a variety of stories that were coming out of that part of the world. Well, you know, you're absolutely right, Tom. You know, the interesting thing was that when we covered, we were the man on the spot. And in, during the Beatle tour of America, 1964, just over 50 years ago, uh, we, I got up close and personal with them in a way that today I don't think could. And don't forget, the other fascinating thing was back in 1964, we didn't have the Internet. And when I wanted to learn more about the Beatles, you know, I either had to go to the library or call my office and get them to read me stories. And I didn't know all that much about the Beatles, believe it or not, because, well, you know, communication wasn't that incredible. So what I did was I watched them on the Ed Sullivan show like 74 million Americans did, learned all about it, discovered that John was the married one. And, and after the Ed Sullivan show, Brian Epstein saw such a huge audience and he said, let's, let's catch, catch it while we can. And he said, we're going on tour to America. Five months later, they showed up and I showed up and that's how it all began. Well, and you did not have a huge amount of, of prior knowledge to the fact that you were going to be doing this. I mean, the, the tour had been scheduled in, in uh, what you describe as, as kind of a, uh, not a haphazard fashion, but they were just uh, booking shows and figuring out the details sort of after they got it booked. And you were sort of rushed up right after they had performed, I think in Los Angeles, was it? Yeah, I mean, what actually happened was 
as you said, haphazard is the word, because Brian Epstein said, said to them in America, the agent in America, well, book them around the country, and of course they did, and so they crisscrossed America, going back and forth in no orderly fashion. And so I started on the very first day of their tour in San Francisco, and when I showed up at the Cal Palace and sat down to hear the Beatles live for the first time in my life, I couldn't hear a word. <laughs> and the reason I couldn't hear a word was from, from start to finish, the 17,000 audience, most of them young women, were screaming from start to finish. And that, was, and that was the way it went all across America, into Canada, back into America. So it was a, a different time, a different world, and the Beatles were on the road to rock and roll history. Well, and, and if I'm not mistaken, many of the places they played, uh, the sound wasn't necessarily set up for them, or they hadn't had a pop group ever uh, perform in some of these stadiums. So in addition to the screaming, uh, the, the sound wasn't necessarily good enough to hear the Beatles, but just being there to see them was enough. Well, you're absolutely right, Tom. What actually happened was they played all the stadiums that had political conventions, that had circuses, that had cattle shows, and, and did not have decent sound systems. And it was so bad in most of the places, 98% of the places, that it reached a stage where the Beatles said to me afterwards, most of the shows, we couldn't hear ourselves. And it got so bad at the stadiums where sophisticated sound equipment was a thing of the future, uh, that the Beatles lost their way. Um, Ringo lost his way many times, didn't know what song they were playing, and had to read the lips of John and Paul to find out, and then he jumped on the bandwagon. So it was a strange thing, and the screaming, and the girls came to see the Beatles, not hear the Beatles, and as I sort of kiddingly say, it took me about 15 concerts before I realized what the Beatles were singing about, and they wanted to hold your hand and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> well, uh, now, I was struck by how casual the uh, sort of accreditation process is. Uh, you know, today, if you want to go to a, a small comic con, you have to have five press badges and you just sort of went in, met them, they knew who you were, and you were with them. Uh, can you describe meeting them and the process of, of kind yeah. of getting vetted by, by those people? Well, you're right again. Um, you know, today you have to give a blood donation uh, and they have to check you out <laughs> like you're, you know, you're joining the CIA. Back then, fortunately for me, there was a guy on the tour called Derek Taylor who was a brilliant, witty fellow that used to work as an entertainment writer for the Daily Express, my old, my newspaper. So Derek was my passport to the Beatles. As soon as I got there, he brought me up to their suite. He introduced me to each of the Beatles, told them who I was. They looked at me, they grunted, and they went back to watching television. <laughs> but so, so my, the welcome to the Beatles was not ter terribly overwhelming. Part of the problem was they were, they were so terribly jet-lagged. But then after a few days, they got used to me, and we did, I, I mean, we didn't have badges. I just stuck close. They were in limousine number one. I was in limousine number two, and we were just very close. And when the concert finished, as soon as they, as soon as they started singing their very last song, which was Long Tall Sally, I knew I had to get in limo number two because otherwise I'd be stranded. And so I jumped in limousine number two, followed limousine number one with a police escort, or sometimes, as you may know, the Beatles tried to uh, 
make sure that they were getting out the stadium safely without being attacked by the young women. So they took an ambulance or they took an armored car or a meat truck <clears throat> to leave the stadium. But it was crazy from start to finish to the moment we left the stadium to the airport or to back to the hotel. It just, it was, <laughs> you know, it was just something I'd never seen and probably will never see again. Well, did you have a Cynthia Lennon moment where you were running after any of the uh, limousines or anything? Well, for- fortunately, I didn't. The only thing that happened to me on one occasion was the Beatles had left by an armored truck. And I was in the second limo and everybody thought I was one of the Beatles. Well, of course, if you see me, you know I don't look like a Beatle. But anyway, but they started hammering on the windows and I screamed, I- I'm not a Beatle, I'm not the Beatles. But the girl shook our limousine, and I thought they were going to turn it on its side. And I tell you, I was scared. <laughs> but, you know, most of the time it was not scary. It was incredible fun and just an unbelievable experience. Now, the lads themselves, you, you were roughly the same age. I mean, you were 26. They were a bit younger than you, correct? Yeah, I was actually, I was, I was at the ripe old age of 25. The Beatles were 21, 22, and 23. And, um, and, you know, there were new boys on the American block. They were like, you know, kids in the American candy store. They didn't know what to expect in America. I remember Paul said to me, you know, what can we give America? What can we give America? Because they've got everything. They've got Elvis, they've got the, uh, the, the Motown, and they've got Chuck Berry and all those Buddy Holly and Beatles. But anyway, they gave them more than uh, even the Beatles expected. But yes, I was, I was their age, and I suppose... Because we were prisoners in the hotel with them, because they couldn't step outside, because every hotel was surrounded by fans, I became much closer to them than I would normally have been. And as I say, in today's generation, you probably can get within a mile of the star right. if you're lucky. Right. Now, you uh, have some tales of playing Monopoly with John Lennon. Yeah, you know, what happened was, as I mentioned a moment ago, Tom, um, was that the problem was that the Beatles couldn't go anywhere. So they were stuck. Uh, they, you know, they did meet Miss Cucamonga or Miss whatever it was. It came for photo opportunity pictures or Miss, Miss Dallas, for example. They did mm-hmm. see Miss Dallas who came in, uh, had a picture taken. Um, and so in the 3 o'clock in the morning, John would call my room, and I was right next door um, to his suite, and say, look, we're playing Monopoly. Come over. And so I went over. We played Monopoly. John was actually brought his own English Monopoly set with him. And I, I mentioned that John actually was um, a bit of a cheat because if he didn't land on the property he wanted, he would roll the dice again and again until he landed on the property he wanted. But I got my own back on him because um, I played poker with him and he was a terrible poker player. And I won quite a few shillings from him and actually didn't do too badly. But that was, that was it. We were, we were prisoners in the hotel and, 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 and so they were stuck with me. Well, you, you probably were, you know, witness to the very first germs of John Lennon's uh, later social, socialist kind of viewpoint. Yeah, you know, you know the interesting thing was, was that I remember very vividly that John was the most socially conscious Beatles of them all. I mean, he was worried about playing in stadiums that, that would be segregated and, and asked Brian not to allow allow any, any of the promoters to, 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 to racially segregate the audiences. I don't think they ever did. Um, and and he, was in, he went to Dallas. Uh, and, of course, while he was in Dallas, uh, he said, I want to go and see 
uh, where where Kennedy was shot. Now you've got to remember this, and you probably do. I mean, I, I know you're not old enough, but you know from from your own knowledge that in 1964 there was not much there. There was the grassy knoll. There was that ugly building where Oswald shot, and there wasn't much to see. Today it's a different place, but Brian thought the wound of of Kennedy being shot five, six, seven months earlier was not worth taking the Beatles there, and he managed to persuade John not to go and see it. But John was always Mr. Socially Conscious. The other three were interested mildly, but that was it. And that was John burgeoning into, as you know, the anti-war man, the, the bed-in in Canada and all that sort of stuff. Sure, sure. Now, uh, the Beatles are so heavily dominated by john and paul in the minds of of a lot of people but i really think that that george harrison and ringo Starr were just amazingly talented men in their own right and you were uh, tasked with i think at first helping george harrison with a column that he was writing from america but i, I then it kind of spin into a little bit more than that yeah well what actually happened tom was very simply that i was supposed to write his column of impressions of america but for the first two weeks, uh, George never woke up. And when I say never woke up, I had a deadline of noon for London, and um, he woke up at three in the afternoon, and he was never around to tell me what his opinions were, so I made up the column for the first few weeks. Um, now, I, I, I kept it fairly bland, and then one day, uh, George said to me, either the column you're writing under my name is a bunch of old garbage, he used a slightly stronger word. So I said, well, if you woke up and told me what was going on, uh, you know, we'd do a better job. Anyway, he did, and the column improved enormously once George got his act together and started giving me some input to the column. So that was, that was part of my role there, as well as writing about the madness of each concert and the, and, and the you know, the, the, the girls get, got hurt trying to charge the stage. The police didn't know how to handle 14-year-old girls on the run and so many young women were injured and it, that wasn't very funny but it was you know it was a it was a pattern that happened all over the country of these young women daring to race to the stage when they got onto the stage they if they got to the stage they would sort of hang onto john's legs like a limpet <laughs> mine and john would just carry on playing <laughs> it was funny never bothered him and I must tell you one other funny story at the Hollywood Bowl. They used to have a, a big fountain uh, in front of the Hollywood Bowl. And, and during the Hollywood Bowl engagement, three girls tried to swim <laughs> through the fountain to the Beatles <laughs> and were fished out by security guys. And I, and I, and I wondered what would have happened if, if a, a sort of a bedraggled, soaked young woman scampered onto the stage and tried to hug George or John uh, with their electric guitars, it, c it could have been dangerous. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, Ringo had not been with uh, the guys as, as long as uh, the group had been together, famously replaced Pete Best. Was he yeah. kind of the newcomer, or were they all just... Well, he was, he was still the newcomer, and in a way, John, in his sense of his sort of wicked sense of humor, uh, uh, sort of took uh, the mickey out of, of Ringo and would say things like... Uh, you know, Ringo's not even the best drummer in the Beatles, but 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 they all <laughs> they all they all got together. They all uh, and Ringo was a little bit insecure because um, about two months before the Beatles came to America, Ringo had got a very bad attack of laryngitis, 
and he had to go to the hospital, and he missed the first 10 days of their Australian tour, and they brought in a substitute, and Ringo was very worried, and as soon as he got out of the hospital, he jumped on the plane, he flew 37 hours from London to Melbourne to rejoin the Beatles and get behind the drums, and the, and the, and the substitute drummer went off to become a footnote in Beatle history. But I must tell you this, at the end of the American tour, Ringo was the most popular. As we left the country in New York City, I saw signs that said Ringo for president. And the other thing that was interesting about Ringo was he wasn't given too many songs. In fact, he was given one or two songs if he was lucky. But if you remember the movie A Hard Day's Night, which of course has had been resurrected this uh, last year, who came out best in the movie? Ringo. Ringo was the star. So Ringo emerged rather lately as, as a very popular Beatle. Well, and one thing I like to point out to people uh, in my point out to people way is that immediately after the Beatles broke up, the big commercial success was not Paul and Wings and it was not John Lennon. Ringo had a string of hits while those two guys were kind of dormant, and there were a lot of people talking about, hey, was Ringo uh, kind of the unseen uh, force behind the Beatles? Well, I, I wouldn't actually say that, but, but you know, the, the Beatles used to kid and say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll throw our leftover songs at George and at Ringo. But I will tell you this, I know this for a certainty, because George suggested it to me at the time and told more, me more about it many years later, he never was very comfortable being a Beatle. He wanted to be recognized for a man in his own right. And he felt at the time of the Beatle tour that John and Paul uh, kind of hugged all the best songs and, and threw him sort of uh, uh, little tidbits. And then, as, as you said, as soon as George broke up and left the Beatles, he ended up writing a lot of great music and... Um, and some of his some of his uh, independent solo stuff is quite brilliant. And Ringo, in his own way, has done well because I don't know. Have you seen him do his uh, his all star band? Oh yeah. What that show? Yeah. Oh yeah. So, he's got uh, uh, Ian. Um, he's got all the guys with him. It's a great show. Yeah. Well, well, you know the interesting thing, Tom, and I'm sure you noticed it was the fact that when he does his show, Ringo is the star attraction, but. He has the good sense and intelligence to let the other young, younger artists and the singers and composers have their moment in the sun. And that's why Ringo and the All-Star Band have been so successful. Ringo is there to kind of bring them in, pack them in. But the other people, the other musicians, all get their moment in the sun to sing their own songs. And Ringo is content to let them have that glory. Yeah, yeah, he's he's absolutely wonderful, and uh, you know some of the things George Harrison did in the in the world of film uh, yeah. are are amazing as well. So, uh, yeah, well, well, George uh, George wanted to branch out, and as you said, in in, in the, I mean, George financed a lot of the Monty Python stuff. I mean, George loved that sense of humor. Had like most of the Beatles had a kind of a wicked Liverpudlian sense of humor, and the Monty Python group, and he got became friendly with Eric Idle, um, and, he, and his, he was a financier and, and supporter of Handmade Pictures, which is the company that made many of the Monty Python films and other films. So George branched out into a movie producer, uh, as well as sometimes popping up from time to time in one of the, uh, in one of the films, including, do you remember The Ruttles? Oh, yes. Remember that? Yes. The, well, the, George, uh, George, George Harrison is in The Ruttles. 
Oh yeah, and the Ruddles, for those who don't know, is the Spinal Tap for 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 the Beatles. Basically, uh, it's a, yeah. a mockumentary, and it's absolutely brilliant. Frankly, I think it's what spawned uh, Spinal Tap. Uh, and uh, the the film Time Bandits is is a, a just yeah. a wonderful film, and it's just got George Harrison's fingerprints all over it. Yeah, and and and, and so George had that, and George had uh, uh, you know an incredible talent that blossomed beautifully once the Beatles broke up, and which was bound to happen. And even though all these stories about bringing them back together never quite came off, but uh, but they all went on to incredible careers as you know in in the music biz now paul probably you know for us over here in the united states was the 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 easiest for americans to embrace you know the good looking lead singer very very uh inoffensive to the press etc what were your impressions of uh, paul mccartney during that tour well there's there's an expression that is used in Amer- in the american lexicon uh, Paul from day one was a schmoozer, which is, you know, a word meaning he knew how to get on with people. And just exactly the way you described Paul then, uh, I think he is today. I mean, he happens to be richer than he was then, but uh, not surprisingly. Mm-hmm. But he was very amiable, affable. He knew how to handle the media. Uh, on the plane, whenever we, we all traveled in a private Beatles jet. Um, when we took off, Paul used to come down and say, how are you doing, Ivor? Can I get you a drink? So I said, how about a gin and tonic? So Paul would go to the galley and pour me a gin and tonic and serve it to me. So, so, so my, you know, my claim to fame is that Paul McCartney was once my waiter on a, on a jet plane. <laughs> but, but that was the kind of guy he was. And he, um, he married into the Eastman family, as you know, mm-hmm. and they were lawyers. And as a result of being lawyers, they made him savvy to the ways of the music business. And there's no doubt that of all the Beatles, Paul is the most financially, fiscally brilliant. Uh, and, he, and he's evolved that way. And uh, the latest, um, richest entertainers in the world have Paul in the, in the, certainly in the top three. Yeah. And it's been that way for a long time. He's, he's very savvy in real estate and also purchasing uh, the rights uh, to other people's uh, published works and things like that. Um, Exactly. And you can probably, you know, you're, you're an expert, Tom. You, you can probably tell me um, there was a whole thing with Michael Jackson, if you remember, right. buying the Beatles, Beatles song sheets. And, and uh, then I think um, Paul brought them back and now they're owned by Paul and they're owned by Sony. It's a bit of a mess. I'm not sure. But Paul had the good sense to realize that if he controlled his own songs, he would do rather well and he's done rather well. Well, I think from what I've read that some of the early experiences with the Beatles and how their contracts were negotiated weren't uh, only responsible for Paul's current fiscal smarts, but they were part of the schism of the band at a certain point because Paul's group was wanting to do a thing a certain way to ensure the financial future, and some of the members of the band just weren't as interested in that. No, I mean, that, that, that is absolutely true. Um, I would say that Ringo wasn't too financially savvy. George didn't know that much about it. John wanted to perform. Uh, Paul was, was the sort of leading light. And that was the, the sort of the core problem that resulted in the Beatles finally breaking up. But uh, the other thing that is interesting, and I'm sure you probably know about this, Tom, is that 
in a way, Epstein was brilliant in the way he, he transformed the Beatles from the grubby uh, Hamburg days to the Beatles that we know and love. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't that brilliant when, when it came to contracts like merchandise. Now, merchandising, you've got to remember, back in 1964, wasn't very big. So Brian Epstein got somebody else to handle merchandising, and he gave away the store. What he did was he signed a letter of agreement with the company handling the merchandising for their first American tour to a guy who gave him a sheet of paper that said, we get 90%, the Beatles get 10%. And I remember vividly that Brian then, when he arrived in New York, was given a check for $9,000. And he said to the guy, wow, this is fantastic for merchandising. How much of this do I owe you? Oh, and wow. the guy said, oh, Brian, <laughs> this is your 10%. And Brian, who was no fool in certain elements of business, had a fit and thought, oh, my God, I've given it away. And they actually went to court and they battled for years to try and uh, straighten it out. Uh, they, they finally did, but it took many, many years to do that. So Brian wasn't that savvy about merchandising. And at the same time, when the Beatles, if you remember, made help, United Artists, uh, they made Hard Day's Night and then they made help. United Artists, before they made the first movie, signed the Beatles to a three or four picture contract. Um, and Brian said, okay, let's do it. And also when it came to when they broke the Beatles into, um, into a stock market offering, uh, Paul and John didn't get much of a, a piece of the action. So Brian was brilliant in some ways, but not so brilliant in other ways when it came to business. Right, right. Well, you mentioned that the band would have been lynched if they went out in public. Uh, I think you tell one great story of how two girls tried to get smuggled up in a large box that they had delivered to the room. Uh, what are some other ways these female admirers tried to get to the band? It had to be nonstop. It was nonstop. Um, it was nonstop so that finally they had a kind of an advance party that went into their room before they arrived just to check it out because, because before that happened, several times... Uh, young women uh, hid in the closet of the Beatles' rooms. And I, I always tell the story that I forget where it was. It may have been Dallas or Philadelphia. But I showed up and, and, and went into my room, and there were three girls hiding in my room. They didn't know which room they were in. And then as soon as they saw me and realized that, that they, uh, I wasn't a Beatle, they ran screaming down the hallway. And then another time um, in Cleveland, a young lady knocked at my door and said, I'm Ringo's sister. Where's Ringo stay? Well, I, even I knew Ringo didn't have a sister, uh, and she wasn't, on, you know, she wasn't around. Uh, and, so, and then they, they hid in, uh, in room service carts, th four women... Um, camped out at night in the boiler room of a hotel before being discovered. So they tried every trick in the book to get to hold the Beatles' hands, and the Beatles uh, and their very, very thin security line tried to keep them out. And it was kind of fun. Most of it was harmless. Um, and occasionally the Beatles did meet the young women when there was a picture opportunity, or as I say, if it was Miss Dallas or Miss... Uh, Albuquerque or wherever. Now, did uh, being young men in uh, their early 20s, uh, were the Beatles uh, able to take advantage of any system that would allow them to maybe meet uh, a young lady they'd like to meet? Well, of course, you know that the, the Beatles on the American tour as rock and roll um, legends uh, behave like priests, celebrate priests, not <laughs> 
<laughs> that was that was, I'm kidding you, of course. No, everybody wanted to meet the Beatles, and Mal Evans, the road manager, and Neil Aspinall, the other road manager, were their kind of gatekeepers. But I tell you this, um, because I had an English accent, I got approached many times by mothers who were willing to um, barter all sorts of things if I was able to get the Beatles to see their daughters. And, and of course, you know, I mean, I, as I say, and I, you know, you can see me with, with a straight, honest face. There's not much I could do about it, but I could introduce them to the Beatles road managers, which I did from time to time. So there were women trying to get to the Beatles. Some of them did. The Beatles were very concerned to make sure that they, if they, if they did cohort or whatever you want to, however you want to put it, or meet or hang out with young women, that they, they made sure that the women were of, uh, of the um, uh, advanced age of 21, I think it was, because um, hanging out with underage girls would have put the uh, kibosh on the tour which it nearly did in, in Las Vegas. But, uh, but anyway, there were women dying to meet the Beatles, and the Beatles, from time to time, were dying to meet the women. <laughs> well, I understand there were some ladies at the evening that were gathered together for a photo op or something. I think it was well, here you, in Dallas. Well, you obviously, yeah, you, you know, you've done, oh, you, you've obviously read the book. Oh, yeah, <laughs> cover to cover, well, I could not put it down. I Honestly, good. sir, I could not put it down. This is the best book on the Beatles I have ever read. Well, that's very kind of you to say so, and there's been a few Beatle books written, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, here's what happened. Um, the Beatles had done fantastically well in Atlantic City for the, for the promoter, and the promoter decided that he would do two things. He would provide some entertainment for them in two ways. The first thing was we all were invited to the Beatles' uh, top floor suite, where they had a party, a gigantic party in an adjoining reception lounge and at that reception lounge they they wheeled out a a big screen and they showed us a hard day's night the first beetle movie now before the film began uh, the promoter walked in opened the door and out trotted seven or eight very attractive skimpily clad young women now i knew they weren't beetles fans because uh, first of all they didn't scream they stood there rather looking, um, how can I put it, very desirable. And the guy said to the Beatles, he didn't say it to me, unfortunately, take your pick. And the Beatles stood there like uh, they were at the candy store. And they, <laughs> and they did make a selection, and they did leave the room, and the lights went down, and we watched the movie. <laughs> that was, and, that, that, you know, and Brian, of course, was a bit upset, because, I mean, you don't do that in front of, of media, and I was there, and uh, some of us saw what was going on. I mean, it was all a big laugh, but uh, Brian didn't want scandal attached to his boys. No, no, they were they were the squeaky clean Beatles that he he created from the ground up. Uh, well, squeaky clean is absolutely right because, as I mentioned a little uh, earlier, um, what happened? <laughs> what happened, Tom, was that he he picked them up from Hamburg, as you know, and they were wearing uh, leather jackets. Their hair was greasy. They told rude stories on stage, they smoked, they turned their backs to the audience, and he cleaned them up, and he had those meticulously tailored suits, and the same haircuts, and they bowed at the end of it all, and he wanted a clean-cut image for America, and he was absolutely right, because at the same time as the Beatles were sweeping across America, there was another group from England also doing quite well, and I remember in New York, I asked somebody, 
you know, what's the difference between the Beatles and this other group? And, and he said, well, you know, because the Beatles image is the way it is, everybody, girls, parents want to hold their hands. But if, if you're the Rolling Stones, they're the kind of group that wanted to burn your town down. So that was it. The bad boys versus the good boys and the good boys were the Beatles. Well, and the uh, Beatles, of course, um, easy for American audiences to accept because of the, the squeaky clean uh, type of a, of a image they presented. Uh, here in the United States, we have a, probably reduced the Beatles to a, a fable, which isn't probably as resonant as it should be, but it's they were in the Cavern Club, then they came to the Ed Sullivan Show, yeah. then they became famous. Then Bob Dylan introduced them to marijuana. Then they met yeah. the Maharishi. Then Yoko came along. They played a concert in New York, and that's the Beatles. You were there, actually there, for the legendary moment when the Beatles were introduced to marijuana by Bob Dylan. Yes, a sem I, I, seminal, seminal moment in yeah. music history. Can, what really happened? Well, here's what happened. Um, uh, Bob Dylan showed up. He'd been to see the Beatles' final concert in downtown New York. Um, it was a charity event. And the Beatles said to Bob, come back to our hotel. And they were staying in a hotel uh, right by the airport and, um, because the next day they were going to take off back to England. So I saw Bob Dylan show up at the airport because it was the last night. We were all hanging around. We were having a party. Uh, some other radio people were waiting for a last-minute interview. And we were sitting in an ante room to the Beatles suite. And then I saw this scruffy looking guy who I kind of describe as, you know, he would, he would raid a, a hen house. <laughs> uh, and it was Bob Dylan. I mean, I, it was quite astounding. He had a little pencil mustache and, uh, and a backpack. And he went into the Beatles and the Beatles were great fans of his. They loved his music and he loved their music. It was a mutual admiration society. So he went in there and he provided them with a very high grade of marijuana. Now, they supposedly smoked in Hamburg, but not good stuff. And Bob brought the best stuff. And he, he passed he had a, a fat cigarette he gave to Ringo. Now, Ringo didn't know the protocol for smoking marijuana was to take three puffs and pass it on. So Ringo took this fat marijuana joint, smoked the whole damn thing <laughs> by himself. I know that because when, when, they lifted the towel, when they lifted the towels up to, to, to prevent the odor coming into our next door room, Ringo was giggling on his knees. <laughs> and, the other, and the other Beatles had also um, imbibed uh, from additional joints, and they were, they were feeling no pain. And then Bob left, and then the following day, the Beatles rather hung over from all sorts of other things as well as the pot headed back to England. But I'll never forget that, that incredible <laughs> time when, when they did uh, get the opportunity to smoke good weed. <laughs> well, now, you were, you were there for another uh, very famous moment, which was Elvis meeting the Beatles, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, well, here's what happened, Tom. For the first year, Brian Epstein, the manager, and Tom Parker, Elvis's manager, had been trying to get the boys together. It never worked out in 1964, despite many lunches that Parker had with Epstein. However, in 1965, in the summer of 1965, Elvis was staying in his 
house in Bel Air, which is a posh neighborhood. You, you, you know, sure. Bel Air is a posh neighborhood of Beverly Hills or, or adjoining Beverly Hills. And finally, the Beatles, who were very, very keen to meet Elvis because John was a huge fan of Elvis from the days of Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel and Blue Suede Shoes. Finally, we got the call that Elvis was ready to meet the Beatles. So off we went again in a couple of limos. When we got to Elvis's house, there were a bunch of fans surrounding the house, and I think Colonel Parker tipped them off. But Colonel Parker said no journalists are to be allowed to that meeting, no cameras, no tape recorders, but we went, I went, uh, and I was supposed to be a member of the entourage and who knew. And when we got there, strangely enough, we walked in and Elvis was sitting there uh, surrounded by uh, some beautiful women and a few of his Memphis Mafia. And to be honest with you, for the first 15 to 20 minutes, it was very awkward. Nobody said, Tom, I'd like you to meet John. Uh, and finally, the Beatles got up and they introduced each other. I'm John, uh, John and they sort of clipped their heels. Elvis was a bit awkward with them. And finally, Elvis got up and said, you know, haven't you guys come here to jam? Uh, well, the Beatles had come here to do all sorts of things. Who knows what? But jam was probably a good idea. And they said, yes, they brought the guitars out. And for 20 or 30 minutes, we got a concert of not Beatle music and uh, some Elvis stuff, some, some, from, um, uh, some good black blues music, and they hit it off for the first time. And they enjoyed each other's company. Then they started talking about the, the, the perils of flying and, 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 and the arduous touring that they were doing. And they hit it off quite well. And when they left about two in the morning, we all left at the same time, of course. They said they would get together again, but they never did get together again. And I should have prefaced the story by telling you, Tom, that at that time, Elvis was jealous of the Beatles. And he was jealous because, number one, they'd knocked him off the number one perch, uh, top of the hit parade, now the Beatles. And number two, Elvis was churning out rather awful yeah. three movies a year, three movies a year uh, under his contract. And the Beatles had turned out A Hard Day's Night, which was considered a huge success. So he was very envious of them. There was a little bit of resentment there from him. And then, um, you may remember this, Tom, but a few years later... Elvis Presley went to see Richard Nixon and yeah. badmouthed the Beatles. And he said they were a bad influence on American youth because of their uh, hip swinging, you know, gyrations. Well, I mean, that was kind of a joke. Right. But then I must tell you that when I, I told somebody this story at a Beatles convention, and then after the, the, um, I finished speaking, a guy came running up to me. He said his name was David, and I should, I'm sorry. I, I, anyway, he said, I'm David. I'm Elvis's half-brother. Oh, he said, I grew up on Graceland, and, and, and I went with Elvis when we went to see Nixon. And I'll tell you this, when Elvis went to see Nixon, he had two, two problems. One, he was absolutely stoned out of his mind. And two, he wanted Nixon to give him a drug enforcement agency badge. Yep. You, you, you're familiar with that. Oh, he, he, I think he got the badge. The, he, he and, got the badge. He and Nixon are uh, the picture of both of them with the badge in between them. Yeah, there you go. So I think, I think you know, it wasn't, I mean, Elvis, Elvis saying the Beatles were a bad influence is kind of rather ironic, wasn't it? Well, especially for gyrating hips. I mean, he wrote, exactly. the, he wrote the book I mean, Elvis it. invented gyrating hips, didn't he? Yeah, they wouldn't even show them on TV here. Well, there it is. So, you know, so, so, so they never, 
they never met him again. They never got together again. And um, it was unfortunate, but but that's, you know, that meeting was amazingly never catalogued by pictures, by recordings, by anything, except I was very fortunate to be there in the house watching it all unfold. Well, and many people don't remember the fact that although the Beatles were quite popular, there was a segment of the population here in the United States that were resentful of the Beatles because... The Beatles were the first wave of the British invasion, obviously, and within a very short period of time, there were very few American artists in the top 10. Uh, It was just totally dominated, and so people that loved Motown or certain other kinds of music were were somewhat resentful of the Beatles. Well, there there was. That is is absolutely true. But then, of course, you you may remember what happened was uh, 1964 was the first tour. 1965, they did a shorter tour. 1966 was their last ever touring year in America. And what happened in 66 was when John Lennon's quotes about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus came back to haunt him in America. And that turned... A large segment, particularly in the, in the American South, it turned them off of the Beatles. They burnt the Beatle records. John was very fearful for his own life, believe it or not. I mean, he was scared. And they were even thinking about canceling the 1966 tour because there was such bad blood and bad feeling about the Beatles. The Beatles did the tour. Um, they were very concerned, particularly in the Deep South. And I always remember... Uh, Tony Barrow, who was their, who, their press guy on that tour, said to me, uh, we were in the Deep South, I think it may have been Memphis or somewhere, and during the concert, a firecracker was let off, and, he, and Tony said, we all expected to see John crumpling down on stage in a, in a pool of blood. Uh, but that, was the, that gave you some idea of the, the, of the concern about America by the year of 1966. And then, of course... The following year, they started the breakup, and they never appeared in public except for the time they played on the, uh, the recording studio roof. Remember that? Uh, uh, the that, Apple, yeah. That session. Apple, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, so, uh, and so, in a way, um, they had taken over. They were, they were kings of the, of the country, and then there was a decline, and then there was the breakup, and, uh, and you know what happened then. Right, right. Now... The Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles uh, rejected the Beatles because they were perceived as maybe too rowdy. And they ended up staying in a house somewhere. And uh, please tell us how it happened. They watched a movie at Burt Lancaster's house. Did they meet Burt or did they just go watch the movie? Well, here's what happened. Um, First of all, uh, the Ambassador Hotel... Uh, where, by the way, as you mentioned at the beginning of your conversation, right. uh, I, I was there when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, it was in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel some years later. But they had turned them down, so the Beatles decided that they were going to rent a house, a private house, and they rented a private house. And, and it, it, was much, it was much better because, number one, uh, within an hour, of course, everybody knew where the private house was, but the Beatles were also being uh, seduced by many movie stars who wanted to have their picture taken, including Jane Mansfield. They were great fans of Burt uh, Bert Lancaster. And Burt Lancaster actually invited them one evening over to his house. He served them dinner. He, they swam in his indoor-outdoor pool, which was a great highlight for Ringo. He, he, you're, starting, you're starting swimming outside, and you go under a glass 
partition and you're back in the house, in the indoor pool. And then after all that, Bert showed them the newest Peter Sellers movie that night. And they went home very happy. And they liked Bert. And they liked Bert Reynolds. And um, not Bert Reynolds, Bert Lancaster, I'm sorry. They liked Lancaster because he was, uh, he was a hunky guy. He'd been in these movies like Trapeze. And, and, and um, they were, they were, he was one of the actors that the Beatles wanted to meet. And they met. And there were a few others, like um, they liked Joan Baez because she was a, um, a girlfriend of Bob Dylan. Uh, but a lot of the movie stars they tried to avoid because they realized a lot of the movie stars were trying to get publicity off of the Beatles' back. Right, right. Well, and Burt Lancaster, famously a, a guy's guy, just a, a regular guy, and uh, Hollywood's full of stories of Burt Lancaster just being... Uh, an unassuming gentleman. It, uh... Yeah, and and that's what they liked about. It. I mean, Burt Reynolds never Burt Reynolds never demanded when when they showed up at his house to see the movie and have dinner. He he never had a, a personal photographer take pictures. Whereas Jane Mansfield enticed uh, three of the Beatles. <clears throat> Paul never came because Paul was off um, with uh, with one of his girlfriends of the time, Peggy Lipton. Oh boy, uh, who was, uh, the who Mod was, Squad and ended up squad uh, girl, yeah. being married to, or uh, being uh, the wife of uh, Quincy Jones, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but, but don't forget, she wasn't at the time, but no. she married Quincy, yeah. So Peggy was a gorgeous blonde girl and she fancied Paul beyond belief. And Paul was no um, shy guy. So off he went one evening with her while the other three Beatles were seducing to going to the great nightclub on Sunset Boulevard called the Whiskey Go-Go to watch um, Jane Mansell's friend Johnny Rivers perform. Well, when the Beatles got there, they thought it was going to be a fairly quiet night, and they discovered that there were about 25 paparazzi <laughs> waiting for them to show up because Jane, who loved publicity, she is sort of the mother's milk uh, uh, of publicity women, um, and she was, if you remember, a very voluptuous sex symbol in Hollywood, if you like. So she had conned the boys to come along to see this show. They were trapped in a booth. Um, they started getting uh, a few drinks. George was very upset at a photographer that was sticking his huge camera up George's nose. And George said something like, bugger off or leave us alone. And the photographer moved closer, took a picture again. George had a few drinks. He picked up his drink and threw it at the photographer. But George had a bad aim and he missed the photographer and the drink splattered all over another voluptuous lady who happened to be close by called Mamie Van Doren. Oh she, boy. She screamed. Remember her? Well, she was uh, Jane Mans, the poor man's Jane Mansfield pretty much. That's exactly perfect. Absolutely. She was, she was. And she, she was also somebody mentioned and I've forgotten this, but she was married to a, um, a Los Angeles Angels baseball player called Bo Belinsky. Uh, I don't know, you know, you yes, know your sport. Yes, a, a pitcher for the uh, pitcher. Los Angeles Angels famously lost a, a game fifteen to zero and was quoted as saying, oh. "How can you how can you expect to win if you don't give a guy any runs?" <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah, that's that's something I didn't know. I didn't know about fifteen zero, but uh, yeah. So so she got doused. And Jane and the Beatles made a quick getaway. And the next day, much to George's chagrin, 
on the front page of the Los Angeles Examiner was a picture of George throwing the drink at the photographer. <laughs> and George was very upset by that and realized that he, he had been sort of conned into going out with Jane Mansfield. But uh, it, that ended up as another rather an amusing story. And, and, and the, the other thing I didn't mention was that I was sitting at a table about 15 feet from them, watching it all like, a, like live theater. I mean, <laughs> uh, it, was, it was, you know, an amazing evening, a jam nightclub, drinks thrown, screams, off they went, the Beatles, uh, and re regretting that they'd been, been enticed to a nightclub by Jane Mansfield. And in fact, Jane Mansfield was playing um, footsie with uh, John <laughs> uh, while she was at the club, but... That's another story. Well, you know, and Jane uh, Mansfield, kind of the poor man's Marilyn Monroe, not that yeah. famous for acting, basically famous for being a sex symbol. If uh, exactly. Di Diana Doors had been in there, you would have had the, the great triumvirate of blonde well, bombshells. You know, you, know you're, you, you are an expert on sex symbols. My well, God. I try. Diana Doors, I haven't heard that name for a long time. Yeah, they were all blondes. And, and you correctly said that Jane Mansfield was being groomed by Daryl Zanuck, the head of 20th, Fox, 20th Century Fox Studios, being groomed to step in if Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe misbehaved. Uh, and, and Jane Mansfield was one of the early uh, exponents of the wardrobe malfunction <laughs> syndrome. Well, that and... Uh... Uh, Jane Mansfield, uh, you know, the girl can't help it, and all the other films she was in was just basically the hot girl. You basically that night got to see reality television before reality television. You, that's a great line, and I'm going to rewrite the book and put that line in because <laughs> it was reality television. It was fantastic, and uh, and uh, it was it was before reality television was thought of, and that's what it, that's what happened. I mean, today, Jane Mansell would have had her own reality TV show. There's no doubt. Uh, now, everybody has it. You, you and I, I'm not sure about you, but uh, anyway. <laughs> well, you should have one. And, and really, when you think of Anna Nicole Smith, uh, yeah. you know, that's basically Jane Mansfield. Now, uh, Groucho, Groucho Marx uh, crashed a Capitol Records party that was thrown for the Beatles. And that meeting, first of all, until I read your book, I, I was unaware of it. Second of all, the idea that these guys with this quick um, off kilter sense of humor from Liverpool would meet Groucho uh, is just an, an amazing concept. What was that meeting like? Well, well, you're right, because because it was, you know, they were they were both Groucho and the Beatles uh, became very, very good on one liners, uh, sort of unscripted one liners, because the Beatles did delivered one liners when they did press conferences in every city they went to. But getting back to what you were asking me about Groucho and the garden party was that Alan Livingston, the head of Capitol Records, said to the Beatles, can you do a concert for my wife's favorite charity, which is the Hemophiliac uh, uh, Foundation of Los Angeles? And the Beatles said, well, you know, we, we don't have time to do a concert. But, you know, Brian said, well, why don't we do a reception and you can charge whatever you like and we'll, we'll meet everybody. So off they went to Alan Livingston's mother-in-law's house in Hollywood, in Brentwood, California. And they had a garden party and the Beatles sat patiently for one and a half hours meeting all the Hollywood stars, some of them they didn't know. But the, but the whole uh, reason for, for that was that the, the movie stars were allowed to buy a ticket if they brought a child or their grandchild. 
So there they were, the Beatles sitting on these high, high stools, and I remember it vividly because they cut, you know, the police blocked off the road and it was a little bit insane. But once we got inside, all the movie stars, I mean, Edward G. Robinson, uh, they all trotted out. Uh, uh, Dean Martin's wife, uh, Jerry Lewis, I mean, they all showed up with their kids to meet the Beatles and pose for a picture with the Beatles. And the Beatles knew, I would guess, 60, 50, 40 percent of the stars. And the rest of them, they knew Edward G. Robinson. They got him confused with James Cagney, but that's another story. <laughs> um, and, and, and they all posed diligently for, for pictures. Now, Groucho Marx showed up without a child and gate crashed the party because he lived nearby and they, they let him in. And uh, when we asked him why he came without a, a grandchild or a child, he said, um, I always go to parties where the drinks and the food are free. And, uh, and so, so he was there and Jean Jean Gabor was there. And to be honest with you, Jean Jean Gabor never knew, <laughs> never knew much about the Beatles. She knew they were celebrities. And she said something like uh, to uh, Brian or, some, or, or, you know, do they sing or something like that. Like, and then Hedda Hopper, <laughs> who was the queen, oh, the yeah. queen do, doyen of, 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 of gossip columns, showed up in, in, a, in, a, in a very large flowered hat. And John turned to uh, Brian and said, who's the dame in the, in, in the crazy wild feather hat? And it was <laughs> Hedda Hopper. And, oh. and uh, she, she was unfazed by John's sort of, semi-rude but blunt remarks and she just made sure that she posed for a picture with every one of the Beatles. Now when the show was over after about an hour and a half Paul was relieved to get away and he said you know he said it would have been easier to have done a concert so that was the garden, <laughs> that was the garden party it was Hollywood Hollywood royalty paying tribute to Liverpool royalty. Well uh you know, that's his <laughs> head. Hedda Hopper, for those of you listening and don't know who she was, she was TMZ, basically, only more powerful. Uh, Very, oh my God, you really hit the nail on the head. That's exactly it. Yeah, her and Luella Parsons ran Hollywood after Walter Winchell went his way. And if you crossed them, at least if you were in America, you were in big trouble. You didn't have a career it, anymore. You know, and, and in, in those days, if you became, if you were a movie actress and you became impregnated either by your husband or by somebody else, you had better tell Heather and Luella before you told the man who impregnated you. Right, right, right. They could make you or break you. They uh, could. They could. You know, um, I well, you just did it. I, I could, I could go blue in the face, listing all the historical figures, entertainers, and people of note that brushed elbows with the Beatles. Was there any interaction that stayed with you that you haven't mentioned? Maybe somebody off the beaten path or, you know, something that sticks with you more than another event? Well, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Jane Mansfield originally started, uh, she showed up at the Beatles' house late one night and tried to have a picture taken, and Brian said, no way, and then she seduced the Beatles to, to, to the next day. But there were many people... Um, uh, you know, Benny Goodman showed up one day in New York with his daughters, and the Beatles, believe it or not, did not Benny Goodman. I mean, they knew everybody else in the pop music world, and they gave short shrift to Benny Goodman, the, you know, the king of jazz or, you know, whatever he was called at the time, um, a great swing band uh, legend. Oh, yeah. And, and when they met him and his daughters, they really, they were very cursory with him, and 
after Benny Goodman walked away, Derek Taylor, who was their brilliant uh, PR guy, uh, said to the Beatles, he, he reprimanded them. He said, Look, you, you've just given, you know, the bums rush is what he called it. <laughs> yeah. And if you, you know about England, uh, you know what the bums rush is. The bums rush is getting picked up by your belt loop from behind and probably your collar and escorted out against your will. Well, exactly. Good, <laughs> good way of putting it. Good, good definition, Tom. Very good. Very good. Anyway, so Derek really gave the Beatles hell for that. And they said, you should have spent more time with him. You should have talked to him. And then I remember at one, uh, one concert... Um, of course, they didn't know who Happy Rockefeller was because the Beatles were not politically minded. He, she was the wife of, of, of uh, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor uh, of New York. And another time she, she, she met them with her kids. And again, the Beatles, uh, they, you know, they, they gave, gave her even shorter shrift than Benny Goodman. So that, there were a few people. Liberace, they met in Las Vegas. They were looking forward to seeing this flamboyant character who was on television and played the piano with his candelabra. And Liberace showed up during uh, half-time at the uh, Las Vegas convention uh, at their concerts. And John was very disappointed because Liberace came looking, well, he said he looked like the local hotel bellhop, Um, not in flamboyant gear, but looking like an ordinary guy. And John was a bit disappointed with that. But, but I would say that 90% of the showbiz people that wanted to get up close and personal with the Beatles were given short shrift. But there were, like Dylan and Joan Baez and, and Elvis and people like that, there were, the, there were the ones they wanted to meet. Did they get a chance to meet uh, a lot of the Motown, you know, the Chuck Berries, the, the people that they had admired uh, when they very first started listening to rock and roll music? Um, well, n- n- not really. Um, I mean, for example, um, the, the Beach Boys were just starting out then, and the Beach Boys were absolutely dead keen to meet the Beatles. And the Beatles had liked their early music, uh, and what happened was finally the Beach Boys almost nervously approached a local DJ in Portland, Oregon, and said, look, you know, we're dying to meet the Beatles. Do you think you could get us in? <laughs> and uh, the, the DJ got them into Portland, and the Beatles were very gracious to them. Uh, Brian um, didn't show up. Brian Wilson didn't come because at that period, Brian was in his uh, claustrophobia, uh, agoraphobia period where he wouldn't leave L.A. So three of the Beach Boys showed up in Portland, and the Beatles gave them a real warm, warm welcome. But uh, and, and occasionally... Um, in New York, uh, uh, they, they met um, a, a few black singers, and in New Orleans, uh, they, they met, um, I think it was Chuck Berry, I, I wrote the book last year, but they, but they did have a sense of that, because Paul was, uh, I mean, look at Long Tall Sally, look at some of the big rollover Beethoven, they were not Beatles songs, but Paul and John loved those songs, and they loved the the entertainers and the, and the musicians that wrote them. So they, they paid um, good service to some of the great singers, although they never met too many of them on the road during the 1964 tour. Well, and uh, John uh, was voracious at collecting these records and exchanging them and, and whatnot uh, when he was younger. Um, yeah, John, uh, don't forget, we grew up, uh, and I was about, as I say, the same age as the boys, 
uh, we grow up with a limited rock and roll uh, experience in that all we, we the BBC, which was the main radio outlet, did not play rock and roll music. So we all listened late at night to a, a kind of pirate, pre-pirate radio station called Radio Luxembourg. Are you familiar with that oh, one? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Radio Luxembourg, uh, many people uh, cut their teeth on all sorts of things on Radio Luxembourg. Yes, they did. And so, you know, the, 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 the reception during the day was useless. But at night, we, we took our little portable radios into bed with us. And in the cold winter nights, we listened to Radio Luxembourg playing the big hits. I mean, that's where John heard Elvis Presley, first of all, Bruce Wade Shoes and, and Heartbreak Hotel. And so they were weaned on a lot of that stuff that came from Radio Luxembourg, which was in Luxembourg in Europe. And, and they did play that, that music, and that was about the only place they could get it. And then, of course, they could get new records when Brian Epstein had his furniture, family furniture store in Liverpool, and then opened a music branch at the furniture store and bought all the new American records. And the Beatles, in pre-famous Beatle era, used to come in, listen to the records, and if they could afford to, they'd buy one. And, and that was it. And uh, exchange them around, yeah. Now, they would. what, in your opinion, did the band seem to like the best about the United States, about America? Well, they like the Motown sound. They like, they like the vastness of the country. The, the strange thing is that you've got to realize, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that the Beatles never got a chance to see America. They saw it from a jet plane. They saw it from a hotel room. They saw it from a concert venue. They never got out and about. They did get out and about um, one day off in Missouri, but uh, where they had had a day off and had went to into a ranch. <clears throat> but the the trouble was, as they were leaving, uh, we asked John, you know, and, and George what they liked, and George said, "Well, I, what I like most about America is the color television, because don't forget they didn't have color television in England in 1964. So that was number one. And John said he would have loved to have. He was bowled over with the fact that the desert." Nevada Desert had been turned into a place called Las Vegas. But <laughs> because, the, because the hotel people were very nervous and wouldn't let them even into the casino, John and the boys never saw any of Las Vegas. And John said he would like to have seen more. Uh, and whenever they needed to buy anything, the road managers went out. So in a way, their tour of America was, was very limited because... They never got out. Was there uh, was there a food they liked that perhaps? Yeah, they... I mean, I mean, basically, basically, what here's what here's what they liked. Ringo had uh, a passion for for the Heinz baked beans, and very often you can't get the same Heinz baked beans as you can in England. So, um, so Neil or Mal brought uh, cans of baked beans for for Ringo. But the other interesting thing was that their food habits were very unsophisticated. Their favorite dishes were steak and chips, hamburger and chips, fish and chips, chips and egg. <laughs> and <laughs> chips, of course, chips are either freedom fries or fries or however you want to say it. I mean, they didn't really go for good wines. And they never bothered with champagne. They didn't mind a beer. They loved to drink rum and coke. Rum and coke, that was their main drink. 
Um, and, and, you know, they were not gourmands. They were not fine food eaters. Uh, they ate food to fuel their energy. Uh, and um, so, so you would never see the Beatles <laughs> having a fine banquet uh, and, and, and asking for, for fine gourmet food. Not then. I think, you know, as they evolved and they moved from Liverpool to the big houses in the, in the Surrey stockbroker belt of London, that their eating habits changed a lot and they enjoyed finer wines. But on the Beatle tour of 1964, you could have fed them fish and chips every day and they would have been happy. <laughs> now, do you have a favorite Beatles song? Well, you know, I always say that in a way, Long Tall Sally, which is not a Beatles song, but it was a song that they finished up every single concert with. On the concert tour, they did the same songs, the same 10 songs, which lasted 28 minutes. And once they'd finished, they were gone. And, and, and the, the, the problem was, as soon as I heard Long Tall Sally, uh, which is not a Beatles original, of course, as soon as I heard that, I knew I had to leave my seat and jump in limousine number two, because with one, once the song finished, we were gone, that we'd left the building. And in a way, I never got to hear Long Tall Sally by the Beatles uh, from start to finish. Because uh, <laughs> in, in, 30 times I heard the first few notes of it, and then that was my signal to get the hell out of the building. <laughs> uh, and so in a way, I liked that one. And, and, then, and then, strangely enough, over the years, um, don't forget the early Beatles stuff was lollipop music. I want to hold your hand and she loves me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then George Martin, as you know, came in and took over their recordings and then lushly orchestrated their music and their music much later, Eleanor Rigby and Hey Jude and some of the, of the later stuff was quite, quite magnificent. But, but it, there's so many Beatles songs. I mean, I've heard them more since I've written the book and been on the road traveling at Beatles conventions. So I like, I mean, every one of their songs is quite brilliant. Uh, what's your favorite? I like Norwegian Wood, but uh, yeah. I'm like you. It's, you know, just throw a dart and hit one, and I'm probably going to be happy. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's true. And, and, and you, can't, you can't imagine, Tom, when I go to the Beatles conventions with my book, that people from 6 to 70 come up to me and tell me Beatles stories. Everybody has a Beatles memory. Everybody knows of a certain age where they were when the Beatles did Ed Sullivan. Um, I mean, it was long before you were born, of course. I'm not exactly sure what year oh, you were born. Oh, I was alive when you were doing all these things in uh, 1964. Just barely, but my, barely. my earliest recollections of the Beatles were in kindergarten when I was five years old, wow. which would have been 68 and uh, the Beatles cartoon, which a lot of people have forgotten about, but that yeah. was so popular. Even as a kindergartner, there were girls in my kindergarten class who could tell you who their favorite Beatle was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I have, <clears throat> excuse me, I have uh, some grandkids and, and uh, last week I went along to, <laughs> I think that the, the fourth grade class or not the fourth grade class, younger class. So let's see now. Uh, anyway, whatever it was, I think it was, it was third grade or second grade class. And I said, I said, you know, I was asking them questions about the Beatles. And I asked them to name the Beatles. And they came out with John, Paul, George, and Elton. Oh. oh <laughs> Elton. No. I said, oh, not quite. You almost got it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, so, did you have any contact after 
the first and second tours uh, with the Beatles, did you, I'm obviously you were quite prominent in Los Angeles as a journalist for, for quite some time. Uh, did you, you keep in contact with them or did you run into them again over the years? Yes, yes, I did. Um, uh, soon after, not long after the tour, when uh, Paul was married to, um, uh, to Linda, I went along to, uh, to have lunch with Paul and Linda at the Beverly Hills Hotel because Paul had come into Beverly Hills to promote um, his James Bond uh, music. Uh, for, for the James Bond music, and 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 you're going to remind me what it was because it just slipped my mind for a second. Live and let die. Live and let die. Right. Thank you very much, Tom. Yeah. So what happened was I got to the hotel and Paul gave me a good welcome, introduced me to Linda, who I didn't know, and he said, "Have you heard the music?" And I said, "Well, not really." So he sat down at the piano, and he banged off "Live and Let Die." Wow. And he said to me, and I I always remember this. He said. This took me 10 minutes to do. Wow, I thought, you know, 10 minutes. Uh, and he was an Oscar nominee for the movie and for the music. And then we, t- we talked about the tour and stuff like that. Uh, and that year, of course, um, unfortunately, Paul didn't win. Uh, I think it was Barbara Streisand won for The Way We Were uh, theme song from the movie. Uh, so that, then that's when I last saw Paul. And then I've seen Paul in concert, of course, since he's been doing his long uh, concert. And I don't know if you, have you seen him at all in concert? No, I, I saw the uh, Super Bowl performance that he did, oh. but I haven't seen him in concert by himself. Well, the interesting thing is, and you probably know the answer to this, Tom, is, is you know how long Paul plays for. Do you know how long the Beatles played for on the, on the American tour? Oh, wasn't it 25, 30 minutes or something? Yep. Exactly, exactly. Well, you couldn't get away with that today, could you? No. 25 to 26 to 27 minutes? No, they sang their ton songs and they were gone. And, um, and now Paul does three hours and 10 minutes by himself with the group. So it's, it's, it's a different ball game. So that's when I last saw Paul. Then I last saw George. I saw him twice. Once when he came over to America um, to promote his, uh, his um, album with Derek Taylor. And then, sadly, several years later, when I went to Derek Taylor's funeral in, 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 in the country outside London, and George was the only Beatle that showed up because George and Derek were, were kind of um, uh, hooked, hooked up as lifelong friends. And uh, as you probably know, uh, Derek ghost wrote and wrote um, George's book, uh, Autobiography. So they were very close, and Derek died prematurely of cancer and, and the only people that showed up was George and, and I saw George and we ch- talked a bit about Derek and he was very fond of Derek. Derek stuck by him during thick and thin periods and they all had thick and thin periods, the Beatles did. And that was the last time and then I'd seen John in LA when he was living with a woman called May Pang. Oh yeah. Uh, after Yoko had sent John to L.A. with May Pang. During the uh, Harry Chapin, Brandy Alexander days. Exactly. Oh, my God. You know it all. Yeah, and that was, uh, that was you know, they, they called the 18... You remember what they called the 18 months in L.A.? I can't uh, remember. John's, no, John's drunken 18 months. They called it the lost weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was quite lost. It was a long weekend as well. That's... So the... I, saw, I saw John there in Bel Air. He was living in a in a house that had been loaned to him by the record producer Lou Adler. 
uh, opposite the Bel Air Hotel in Bel Air, California. And John was drinking a bit then, but he was very warm. And we talked about, um, I told him that I'd written the first book on the, the, the Charles Manson murders. And I asked him whether, uh, as Manson had claimed that the, the, the Beatle music inspired him to the violence. And John said it was a bunch of old shit, actually, was the word he used. Um, and that um, people picked their lyrics and decided to use the lyrics to suit their own purposes, whatever they were. Uh, and so we had quite a nice conversation by the pool. John was getting a, bit, a little bit tipsy, but he was in a mellow mood, and that was the last time I saw him. And then I've seen Ringo uh, about the time, about 18 months ago, when they opened a, an exhibit at the L.A. Um, uh, Rock and Roll Museum in downtown Los Angeles, and Ringo was there with his all-star band, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, I saw him then, and I saw Ringo about six months ago perform with the All-Star Band and Paul with, uh, with his band, with his group at Dodger Stadium, 55,000 people. Quite incredible. Um, and, you know, you follow their incredible fortunes with, with a great deal of interest. Well, speaking of incredible fortunes, what's next for Ivor Davis? I mean, what, well, <laughs> what, worlds, what worlds are there left for you to conquer? Well, it's very, I mean, that's, uh, well, that, that makes me want to hang up my guns. <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, I, I'm working on, a, on, on two books. One is about uh, some Hollywood movies, because I covered Hollywood for 45 to 50 years, uh, all, all the stuff, all the movie stars. And uh, there is another incredible story about a friend of mine in Malibu, California, who turned out to be a mass murderer. So, wow. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's a true story. It's quite mesmerizing. So it's either showbiz or murder. Uh, I haven't quite decided, but uh, I'm still enjoying my ticket to Beetle Ride, and I'm having a good time on that and enjoy talking to you and, and, and the, the fact that you are so savvy and uh, you know know every little wrinkle and uh, i think what i'll do is if it's all right with you when i do my next book uh, tour perhaps you could come along and you can kind of do the q a and fill in the bits that i forget i'd love to and then i can write a book in 50 years called <laughs> ivor davis and me on tour very good okay wow sounds like an absolute winner not <laughs> well i'll tell you what it has been an absolute pleasure the book is the beatles and me on tour by ivor davis you can get it at ivor that's i-v-o-r davis sir it has been just a, an absolute honor to speak with you and if there's anything we can ever do to to help you along please don't hesitate to let us know tom it's a pleasure talking to somebody who knows the, the subject inside out and uh, thanks for reading the book and thank you for your wonderful introduction and your wonderful questions and all the best to you down goes Frazier down goes Frazier down goes Frazier you're listening to the Tom Gully Show
we'd like to thank Ivor Davis for his time. What an amazingly accomplished writer and storyteller. Uh, you know, I am so lucky to get to do this show because uh, I get to talk to people like Ivor Davis. That is, ah, what, what, what a, what, what a career. I mean, uh, go to IvorDavisBeatles.com. That's I-V-O-R DavisBeatles.com and get the Beatles and me on tour. Tell them Tom sent you. Folks, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various Facebook pages. Trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here. Um, continue to get mail about this part of the show. Uh, continue to not know why. We just kind of ramble. Uh, Ivor Davis covered the Watts riots. He was in the Ambassador Hotel when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, he covered the Angela Davis trials. He covered the Patty Hearst conviction, uh, four World Cups. And, and we're leaving out, you know, for, for a guy like this, it's like the everyday stuff, like, Oh, yeah, and I did the first interview with Richard Burton and Liz Taylor after they were married, or whatever. I don't know that he did that, but you know what I'm saying. He, he's got those in his back pocket that just don't even bubble to the top. And, and it's, I think, bitterly ironic that my biggest accomplishment is probably interviewing him. That's a, a vicious circle of his accomplishment and my lack thereof. We'd appreciate it if you'd like the Tom Gully Show, not me, but the show on Facebook, too, if the mood strikes you. And, of course, there's <laughs> there's always uh, there's always the TomGullyShow.com. Go to the web version, even if you use your mobile. There's a thing at the bottom of my mobile version that says use web version. You should use the web version because that's really where you can find everything about the show. There's the Tom Gully Show store with uh, top quality name brand merchandise that just happens to have my logo on it. <laughs> and we always encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free, because if it's free, it's for me. Follow us on Twitter at Atomic Palooka too. People ask me all the time, why is your Twitter handle Atomic Palooka? In fact, I had somebody that's interested in distributing this show and I say interested because there's not an ice cubes chance in hell that someone this dumb would ever get a chance to distribute my show. But they said they actually told me that I was stupid for not having my actual name as my Twitter handle. And I'm just like, uh, well, everywhere I tweet, my big Tom Gully show logo is right next to. And if you've gone to the trouble of looking me up, it's not like I'm famous and you're trying to find me and can't. No, you, you have to have been told or hear about me or go to my site. And, you know, that's how it gets around. Yeah, It's not like I'm Coca-Cola and I'm using instead of at Coca-Cola, I'm using at shrimp or something. Hold on a second. You know, you go to the trouble of, uh, I mean, the light says on air. And I don't care if you do work for the pizza place. It's not a chain. I would tell you the name of it, except it's not a chain. I think the only one is the one in my neighborhood. And it's really good pizza. But, dude, 
um, you told me it was 30 to 45 minutes before you're going to be here. And then you show up in like 20. Uh, anyway, you know, honor the on air light. I have a thing with the other driver, which is if the light's on, just call me on the phone because I have the ringer off and I'll see it light up. And, uh, you know, this kid shows up and, uh, I mean, I got pizza now, but I'm off. I mean, uh, the pizza's getting cold while I'm talking. These people, they just don't understand how a big show like this runs. And we always encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free because if it's free, it's for me. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. I got to go talk to some people, uh, some delivery driver trainers. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson takes us in with the truth wagon. Go to jjohnsonmusic.com. Buy everything that's there. And each night, the Hitman Blues Band takes us out with Catch 22 Blues. Go to hitmanbluesband.com or hitmanbluesband.net. If you go to the .net address and you sign up for their email list, Man, if they hit you once a month, I'd be surprised. They, they really do not overdo It's a very tasteful amount of email. Uh, you'll get nine free blues songs from this, my favorite, blues band on the planet as we know it. So do it. And we will see you next time. Can't lift a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat, a raccoon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night while you hold your baby tight, but he don't want you. You can see it in his eyes from the way he tells you lies. He don't want you.